1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved. I love that. He calls him beloved. You're loved, right? Loved by God, loved by, by me. It might not seem like that going through trial, but you're loved. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Just know it. You're going to go through trial and testing and suffering. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that same name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18 quotes Proverbs 11 here. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So suffering is our topic again uh, this week, uh, kind of wrapping up uh, um, a section here that we started uh, last week. Good to be with you guys. Last week I was uh, down near Indianapolis. I was speaking at a youth fall retreat uh, for College Park uh, Church down there. It's like the fourth or fifth thing I've done for them. So a neat opportunity every other year they, they have me down to, to speak there. So while you guys were back here um, talking about suffering, they hired a boy band to lead worship down there. And I was actually suffering uh, listening to a boy band. And, uh, lead worship with laser light shows and fog machines. And um, they were baby faced kids, and I got an eight inch beard, and I'm surprised I didn't beat one of them up. Um, I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really into boy bands, guys. I don't know if, if you knew that or not. But uh, uh, yeah, but it was a fun time. Good to be back here for sure. Um, so, um, talking about this, this idea of suffering, Peter brings it up again. We bring it up again. Peter's really been talking about suffering, really, this entire letter. In a lot of ways, everything that Peter writes um, is it's really to address the people who are just suffering in general. And so it's no, it's no surprise that he brings up suffering multiple times. And now we come to another section. We saw him deal with it in chapter 1 on this topic of, of suffering and trial. I just want to mention something very basic to this topic of suffering and being insulted for the name of Jesus. This, this phenomenon, this issue that Peter addresses, uh, that these believers are experiencing, and that Peter's been talking about this entire letter. Just, some, just, just a basic thing here about this. The suffering that Peter's talking about is direct suffering for being a follower of Jesus. The suffering that they're experiencing as a community, as a family, as a people of God, as a church, is a direct result from being identified with Jesus. Now, I think that we could take Peter's teachings on suffering and apply them to general suffering for sure, which is what we've been doing to, 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 to a degree. But general suffering is not what Peter is addressing here. All right? And to be, to be honest and true to the text, this is suffering that's a direct result of being a follower of Jesus and living out the way of Jesus where these people live work and play. So just look at the text here, verse 13. You share Christ's sufferings. Now, why did Christ suffer? I'm sure he probably got sick, had a cold, right? Had a friend that died in Lazarus. He, he suffered for sure. But when it says Christ's sufferings here, what does that mean? His sufferings for what? Coming and proclaiming the kingdom of God, loving people like he did, challenging rulers and authorities like he did, right? For proclaiming the kingdom of God. 
for being Christ, for being the God-man on earth. That's the sufferings of Christ. And these leaders, these people, these religious leaders hated him to the degree that they had him killed. And so Peter's saying, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ as Christ's followers, of those who bear his name, as those who identify with him in this world. Verse 14, if you are insulted for what? The name of Christ. So they're being insulted, they're being maligned, right? People are talking about him, hollering at him, shouting at him, talking about him behind their back, talking about him to their face, degrading them, insulting them. Why? Right? Because of what? The name of Christ. The suffering that they're dealing with is not suffering in general, though we can apply it. It's suffering directly related to being identified with Christ in their context. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian. So let's not forget that this whole section here follows 1 Peter 4 in addition to those verses. This whole section follows 1 Peter 4, which tells the story of how these new Christ followers, these people that Peter's writing to, they're experiencing some verbal abuse from old friends because of their new desire to live life God's ways, right? They're maligning them. They're getting maligned and insulted because of their faith in Jesus because they don't run with them anymore into the things that they used to, wild, loose, and reckless living. So they're getting pushed back. They're suffering because of their faith, not because of their health, right? I think we need to point that out in Peter, right? And it's great to take these words and apply them to suffering in general. That's cool. That's great. I think we have freedom to do that. But the suffering that Peter's talking about is suffering as a direct result of being a follower of Christ and being identified with him in this world. And let's not forget that it would be Peter, right, who is writing this letter, who would be crucified upside down. Why? Because of his faith in Christ. Not because they just rolled the dice randomly, like, let's crucify someone today. Like, oh, I'm going through a trial, guys, getting crucified tomorrow. Pray for me, right? No, like, he got crucified because he's a follower of Jesus, right? He's identified with Christ. Now, some of us have and are experiencing suffering, maybe insults, maligning, because of our faith in Christ. Some of us do experience that. In fact, I've, I've talked to, man, even last week, I shared uh, some, some of my first Peter messages at that youth retreat. And there was this gal, she says, man, on the bus, these guys, these kids in the back, they know that I'm a Christian, and they're just all, they, 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 just, they just insult me. They just say stuff about me the entire way there. And it's all because, you know, I'm a Bible thumper, and I love Jesus and all that. And I said, girl, just suffer well. And I was just pointing her to some scriptures and just encouraging her, right? As she's on that bus and with these guys that are just being jerks to her, I just encouraged her with some truth. So I know if I, can, if I could talk to a sophomore in high school and know that for them, they're experiencing some insults and some suffering for the name of Christ. I know that some of you in your family, right, in the places where you live, work and play, that you do experience that. But like, can we just be honest here this morning that for most of us who claim to have a faith in Christ, the suffering that Peter is addressing here with these folks, it's not a normal experience for us. That some of us don't have to fear tomorrow waking up, going to our work, going about our day next week, and suffering for the name of Jesus. Not like these folks do. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that to say, like, we can't look at these verses or we can't apply these things. I'm just saying, I'm just considering our context and just comparing the two. This is not a normal experience for us to be on the margins, to be pushed to the side. It's pretty easy for us relatively and comparatively to follow Christ for the most part. And there's a few reasons why I think that's the case, all right? 
And this isn't an exhaustive list, but I think there's a few reasons why we don't experience what Peter's audience is experiencing. The first is simply this, that we're not very public with our faith in Christ. We can just be honest where we live, work, play, our relationships. We kind of have a privatized faith in Christ. We kind of keep it to ourselves. We're not very public with it. I'm not talking about being that freakish, spiritual, oddball dude that's putting tracks on urinals right in the bathroom and being preachy and putting like, like just being like obnoxious with your faith and then like getting pushed back from that, right? We, Steve talked about that last week, like being the Westboro crowd. Like we're obnoxious with our faith and then we get pushed back. I'm not talking about that, right? Some of you are like, oh, I'm suffering. No, you're being a moron in your workplace and you're being annoying, you know? Like there's a very normal, right? respectable within the flow of life and conversation and relationship to mention Jesus and to share your faith. You don't have to be weird about it, right? So we're not talking about that, but some of us, we have a very privatized, right, faith in Christ, right? In order to suffer for Jesus' name, like Peter's saying, somehow we need to identify with Jesus' name where we live, work, and play, Now, I'm not saying that to throw a stone or to come down on you or to judge you. I'm there. I've had my moments where in fear, I've not said things. I've not walked through open doors, right, and been bold in my faith. I'm just saying this is an issue for us collectively as a community, and I know it. Let's just address it and say, yeah, it is. We just tend to be privatized with our faith. We keep it to ourselves, and we don't really know how to identify with the name of Jesus and love our friends and the flow of conversation, just bring up our faith in natural ways, in simple ways, and in meaningful ways. So the first is that we're simply not very public with our faith in Christ. The second reason why we don't experience suffering and insults because of the name of Jesus is because the threat of suffering and insults paralyzes us from being public about our faith. Am I right? And so we know sometimes that if we come out and we say, right, or if we really try to encourage some friends and get to know them and and look for opportunities to share Christ or come out and say, man, I I, I trust in him. Not just, yeah, I'm going to church this weekend, but really to talk about my, my faith in Christ and how that just plays out in all of life, right? And to encourage and to meet a friend where they are with the truths of the gospel, with the promises of God. To do that, we know that what? Man, maybe we might not climb the corporate ladder like we want. Maybe I might not be a part of the cool kids, the cool crowd, right? Maybe I might, like these believers, might get pushed to the margins, I might get marginalized. I might get talked about behind my back. I might start to experience some of these sufferings, some of these insults. And I think that fear paralyzes us. Can we just confess collectively as a group, yes, for those of us who have a faith in Christ, that oftentimes we're fearful. Can we just say that together? We are. And I know we are because I am. And I know we are because I've talked to a number of people in the whole Greek. Yeah, me too. Me too. And so with with the struggle of our fear, We need to just confess our fear. We just need to say, we just need to wrestle with God. God, I am fearful. Why don't I take advantage of these opportunities? Why don't I walk oftentimes through these open doors that are right in front of me, right? Why don't I oftentimes take a stand or let people know where my faith is? And just to allow the person and promises of Jesus and the truths of 1 Peter to empower us. So there's a personal thing. Another reason why I think this is the case, and this is more systemic and more part of like a broader culture that we find ourselves in here in the States. The third reason that we don't really experience suffering and insults because of the name of Christ is in our context, for the most part, our faith has been domesticated into one religion among many. 
that in a lot of ways we live in a postmodern context, which means there's no, the general belief is there's no more capital T truth that explains all of life and reality. That everybody only has their only little case T truths that just kind of make their boat float and works for them. And I really was hit with this early on in my faith in Christ when God saved me when I was 20 and I went and I told my friends, all right, I, I mustered up the courage to take them out to breakfast or lunch or coffee or whatever. They said, man, you haven't been partying. You haven't been coming along. And, and man, where you been? I go, man, I just want to let you know, like, man, God did, God did something in my life. He kind of showed me that all those things that we've been doing together was just kind of death, man, death in my life. It's a road that just leads to his wrath and, and hell. God just opened up my eyes to see who Jesus was, that Jesus died for my sin and he rose again. I'm not saying it this eloquently when I was doing Christ, but I was kind of trying to simply tell them, you know, like God did a good work in my life. And they're like, hey, man, good for you, man. Dude, that's awesome. Man, congratulations. I thought like we're going to have this like real wrestle with the truth of the gospel. Like, dude, I just got telling you like I was going to hell and God saved me because I was doing what we were doing together. And you're like, hey, cool, man. Hey, that's awesome. Good for you. God for you. And that's the spirit of our day. The spirit of our day is, man, that's cool. Christianity is kind of like one religion, one kind of worldview among many. No more are, are, are important than the other. And you can have your thing and I can have my thing. And so with that is, like, our truth is really not a threat because there is no truth. So in some ways, that kind of contributes to maybe us not being insulted. Back then it was like, you worship Caesar as Lord. You worship Jesus as Lord, you get crucified upside down because you're not submitting to Caesar. A little bit of a different day, a little bit of a different context. Our faith's a little bit more domesticated today, living in a postmodern context. So in a lot of ways, I would say this, and I'm not trying to be demeaning, but really, and I think a day is coming, but really, we're not really ready for Peter's words yet because it's relatively easy for us to have faith in Christ. And Peter's writing to, to a people where it's hard to know Christ. And I'm not saying like, God forgive us because we live in America or we have this easy life. No, God determines the times and places in which we live. We can't help the spirit of the age and the context in which we live. I was praying with a guy one time who said, God forgive me for living in America. I'm like, that's not sin, dude. Like what? <laughs> right? Like God determines the times and places in which we live. We find ourselves in our context by God's design, his sovereignty, and his purpose. But that's just a thought, okay? And I know there's more to that. Um, but I think that we, we, there's still a, a ton of nugget of truth for us and, and a, lot of, a lot of things that we can glean here from this text. So let's get into it. Verse 17. So he's been talking about suffering because of the name of Christ. And as the suffering is coming to them, Peter's going to try to make sense to them. What is God doing in your life as you suffer for the name of Christ? He's going to try to help them make sense of it. All right? So verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter just likens the suffering that they're suffering for the name of Jesus and for doing good with this. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What? Wait, I'm, I'm suffering for the name of Jesus, for doing right rather than wrong, and... Now you're likening this to God's judgment coming to the household of God? Wait, this doesn't make sense. And he says, it's time for judgment to come to the household of God. And if that's the case, what's going to be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel? Really, really quick side note. Obey the gospel is just a synonymous term for belief, belief in the gospel, right? It's not like a life of obedience. We have to submit to these laws. And in the end, like, God away, did we do more good than bad? 
kind of a thing. He's already used this phrase once. Obey the gospel means submit to it, embrace it, and trust in it. It's synonymous with faith. Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Thessalonians. But he likens their suffering to judgment beginning in the household of God. And I'm going to say, this is a pretty difficult passage. I wrestled with this phrase a little bit. And in some ways, Peter really makes a hard shift here. He's kind of explaining what's God doing in the midst of their suffering. And he talks about our suffering for the name of Jesus and for doing right. And he, and, and he says that this is really God bringing judgment to the household of God. And I'm just sitting there, why is suffering for doing good and not bad likened to judgment from God upon the household of God? And then I realized as I started digging in, the point is it's not, at least not the way that we're thinking when we think of judgment. Here's really what Peter's saying is our suffering as Christians is not God's judgment or condemnation on us for doing right, which wouldn't make sense, but he does use it as a sort of a judging means in our lives, meaning this, God uses the suffering in our lives as a purifying and transforming means in our lives. That's what Peter means here, that God's using this suffering, he's using these hardships as a purifying, transforming, disciplining, teaching means in our lives, that he's trying to accomplish something in us. And he's using our sufferings to do that. You know, suffering has a way of confronting the things in our lives that God intends to change in us. Oftentimes, it's his agent to use this in our lives, to put his finger on some things he wants to grow in us. Grudem says this about this passage. The picture is that God has begun judging within the church and will later move outward to judge those outside the church. The refining fire of judgment is leaving no one untouched, but Christians are being purified and strengthened by it. Please, we need to see this. That it's not judging like thinking like final judgment, heaven, hell kind of judging. It's a presence of God that's refining and changing. And we're purified and strengthened by it. Sins are being eliminated and trusting God and holiness of life are growing. That's the idea here. So the truth is simple really to understand. The fire of God's presence among his people presently purifies them. And God's coming presence among his enemies eternally will destroy them. And this is the point he makes. If judgment begins with us, if God begins to deal with us, okay, with our immaturity and our sins, and he's growing us, and sometimes that's painful and difficult, right, what's going to be the outcome of those who don't know him as he stores up wrath for them? God's purifying work in our lives is, in a sense, a judgment. He's dealing with us, contending with us. But it's important for us to know the heart of God as he does this. It's important for us to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel and the character of God as he deals with us, as he judges or disciplines us. We have to understand that he deals with us as sons and daughters. What's the phrase here? The household of God. He deals with us as a part of his house, as a part of his family. We're sons and we're daughters. He's our father. We're his children. We're in the household. We're in the relationship. We're in the family. And he deals with us like our merciful father. We've already seen in chapter 1. Peter describes our father as one who's merciful. And as our father and as the head of this household, right, he contends with his children out of his love and for their good. So we need to lock down the heart of God toward us as we consider this idea of purifying us, changing us, transforming us, and disciplining us. So notice, we're a part of the household of God, and we're a part of this family by faith, not by works, not by good deeds, but by faith. 
So really, really quick, I just want to talk about judgment according to Peter in the gospel. Jesus was judged in our place, amen? Right? Substitute. Sins and consequences of sins that belonged only to us, he laid on Christ in our place, amen? He's our substitute. He was judged. He was condemned. He was put to death in the flesh for our sin. Our sin, which was our responsibility, the responsibility and the consequences for our rebellion, our cosmic rebellion, our idolatry, our, our moving our love over to things that are lesser than God and giving ourselves to them, created things instead of the creator. All the consequences of our rebellion and our idolatry were laid on Christ. He made that which was not his responsibility, namely our sin, his responsibility, and suffered and died alone. He paid the penalty in full. He bore that on his shoulders, in his body, on the tree. And satisfied the wrath of God. He paid the penalty so much so that God was pleased to raise him from the dead, declaring his victory over sin, Satan, and death in his cross. Amen? And we unite ourselves to Christ by faith. And we embrace this gospel and say, yes, I need that. I need a substitute because there is no way in the world by good deeds, church attendance, or Bible memory verses, I'm going to ever be able to atone for my own sin. I need a Savior. And I embrace that by faith. And all the benefits that Christ accomplished in his life and death and resurrection become ours by faith. Forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption right? Being adopted into his family, coming into the household of God, all that Christ has accomplished for us. He was judged. He took our sin. He took our judgment. All that will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God, God has placed on Jesus for those who have obeyed and have embraced the gospel of God. This is a verse we bring up all the time around here because I think we need to be reminded of it. Romans 8.1 says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Some of you fear the day when you have to stand before God. And what will be the verdict? What will be the verdict that God will declare of me as he looks at my life as everything's laid bare? Well, in the doctrine of justification, we already know the verdict that God's going to declare on that day. Because the verdict he's going to declare on that day is already declared in our lives now. Justified. Righteous. And declared to be so by faith in the finished work of Jesus. Amen? The declaration that he's going to declare on that day from his throne, he's already declared it in heaven of us who have faith in Christ. You're justified. You're declared righteous. I don't need to fear that day. I don't need to fear that day at all because I'm in Christ by faith. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. So this judgment that Peter's talking about is not that judgment, okay? It's different. Now in Christ, right, he's made us his people. He's brought us into his family, Right? We are his people. We are of his household. And he has done what to us? He has put his spirit in us. Right? And his spirit has made us alive and caused us to have faith and repentance towards Christ. And, and, is, and is transforming us. Right? He's put his spirit in us. And God relates to his people. And he is among or has a presence among his people in and by his Holy Spirit. That God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands anymore. Amen? He dwells in and among his people, the church. In chapter 2, verse 4, Peter has always already told us, we're a living temple. We're a temple made of living stones. We're, again, here's the phrase, we're the household of God. He dwells among us by his spirit. And the church is not a building. It's not brick and mortar. It's a people that he dwells among by his spirit. He is in us. He is among us. He is involved in our lives in very personal 
in very specific ways. Am I right? God deals with us personally in our lives, right? And there's lots of things God does for his people as he loves them individually and personally and as collectively as a whole. He encourages them, enlightens them, teaches them, strengthens them, supplies them, guides us, protects us, provides for us, helps us, gives grace and mercy, continually forgives, uses us for mission. There's all kinds of ways that God is personally involved in and among his people. And one thing that he does as our God and as our Father is sometimes he disciplines us, or as Peter says here, he judges us. He deals with us. How many of you have ever been convicted by the Spirit of God? Any of you? It's cool to know that half of you are Christians. That's cool. I always joke, like, whenever a pastor tells me to do something, like, turn to your neighbor and say this, like, I never do it. Like, raise your hand if you're this. I'm like, I never raise my hand. I see you, those who don't want to raise your hand. It's cool. You have a friend in me. You have a friend in me. Right? I've been convicted. We've been convicted by God. This is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. He can fix us in our lives. Could be our anger. Could be our lack of faith. Right? Could be our unforgiveness, spiritual laziness, lying, lack of love for our neighbors, pride, whatever the case may be. The conviction from the Spirit is a kind of judgment. Right? It's a kind of judgment. It is God who's declaring these things to be evil, telling us we're guilty of this particular thing. When the Spirit comes and convicts, what is he doing? He's convicting, he's declaring us to be guilty of walking the way of the world or loving something that God hates or hating something that God loves. When, I'm exper- when I experience the conviction of the Spirit, I'm being convicted of my sin. And what's conviction? The Word itself. What is conviction? It's the formal declaration of my guilt in a particular area. In a sense, God's making a judgment He's declaring, dude, you're being prideful. Bro, you're not loving your wife like Christ loved the church. Tony, you're not loving your neighbors with the heart of Jesus. Those are him declaring in my life something's askew, that I'm falling short, that I'm sinning. And with this this idea of the conviction of the Spirit, now we got to start to get a sense of this judgment of God in our lives. He deals with us contends with us, right? And so he does. But he does so in the context of a relationship where he's our father and we're his sons and daughters. And he does so under the grace of Jesus. He does so under the banner of you're loved. I love you and I accept you. And as a part of this household, his people, his church, his presence among us sometimes is a disciplining or convicting or a judging presence with the goal that we might turn away from that which robs, kills, and destroys and return to him where we may find life, peace, and joy. We need to see this. What are the the things that God's convicting us to turn from? What are those things? They're nothing short of that which robs us of joy. They're nothing short of things that lead to death, right? We're like, yeah, I want to continue in my pride, right? Death. I want to continue in my bitterness, death. Death in you and death in those around you, setting fire to every relationship in bitterness and anger. And it's in his love, and it's in his, his care for us, and it's in his care for the people around us that he contends with us and brings us away from that which robs, kills, and destroys. So I want to talk to you guys about God's discipline in our lives 
And this is something that we oftentimes don't talk about in church. This judgment that begins with us that Peter talks about. And for this, I want you guys to turn to Hebrews 12. If you don't have a copy, it's on the screen for you. But Hebrews 12, circle it, highlight it. Next to this judgment begins with the household of God. Write Hebrews 12 there. This is a great place to turn. And I always turn here whenever I need, just need to make sense in my life when God's just dealing with me. Hebrews 12, we're going to find a lot of encouragement from this passage here this morning. Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. This is Christ. So consider Christ who endured hostility against himself, right? Christ suffered. Why? Not just in general, but because he was Jesus. Because he proclaimed the kingdom of God and the grace of God and loved people the way he did and fought religious leaders the way they did, he did, right? Confronted them and exposed them. So consider him, and they hated him so much that they crucified him, right? Consider how he endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Not grow weary or faint-hearted in what? The same suffering that you're enduring. Come to find out the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to are experiencing the same thing the people that Peter's writing to. They're experiencing hostility towards people because they bear the name of Christ. This is the suffering we're talking about. Don't grow weary. Don't grow faint-hearted. So this is the whole point here. He wants them to not grow weary or faint-hearted in their suffering for being a Christ follower. But he shows them in Hebrews 12, what is God using this suffering for to do in your life? What's he doing here? Here we go. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's not that bad, guys, yet. You haven't died. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So here's the scripture, and he's talking to us as sons, as part of his household. My son, my son, who I have a relationship with whom I have accepted and embraced and welcomed into my family, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In some way, the discipline of the Lord and the suffering for the name of Jesus, they go hand in hand in God's economy. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, meaning this, pay attention to it, right? Have an ear to hear, a heart to hear. Don't regard it lightly. Don't take it as something you can just sweep under the rug, move away from. Don't regard it lightly. Pay attention to it. Wake up. God's teaching you something. Don't regard it lightly. Don't flippantly approach it. Approach it with seriousness, knowing that God's dealing with you. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't get discouraged. Don't get down and out. Right? Don't be discouraged, man. Be encouraged. God's doing something cool, as we're going to see here. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. When you experience conviction from the Spirit, when you experience the discipline of the Lord, when God contends with your heart, it means he loves you. It means he's not abandoned you. It means you're in a relationship with him. For the discipline of the Lord he disciplines those whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And sometimes God is involved in our lives is a chastising, is a reproving, is a disciplining involvement. Why? For love. Now notice what the writer of Hebrews says. I love this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Right? They're, they're in it, man. Some of them are thinking about throwing away the towel and walking away from Christ. And some of them need to endure in their faith. And God's bringing this suffering. What's the point of this, right? 
He's saying this discipline, this suffering is necessary for your longevity in the Christian life. It's necessary that you endure in the faith. God is treating you as sons. He reminds us again. He's treating us as our father. Then he says this, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Show me a father who doesn't love a son enough to discipline. And the implication here is this. If an earthly father loves a son, he's going to contend with him. He's going to discipline him. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, I don't need to worry about whether or not I'm connecting with my audience this morning. Right? Hebrews says this, of which all have participated. We all know this. We all know the discipline of the Lord. We've all been subject to it. We've all been part of this ministry of God and the Spirit in our lives in which all have participated. But if we're left without discipline, what that means, the Hebrew, Hebrew writer says this, we're illegitimate children and not sons. If we don't experience conviction, if part of our relationship with God is he doesn't contend with our hearts, discipline us, draw us away from sin and back to him, it means we're illegitimate children. So one of the things that we need to be encouraged is this. As we experience the discipline of the Lord, one of the reasons that we don't get discouraged and we lift our heads is that this means that I'm not an illegitimate child. It means that I'm really truly a part of this family. And it truly means that he loves me because he loves me enough to be involved in my life. And then he says this. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. And we did. Now my dad was in first service, sat right there, and I started talking about his fathering me in my life. And I'm disrespecting my mom and screwing up at school. Every once in a while, Papa Pete would bring me into the bedroom, right? Sit me on the bed, get big-eyed, right in my grill, say, buddy, you're messing up right now. You're disrespecting your mom. You're running with the wrong crowd. You're doing some stuff, man, that I see is bringing death into your life. And he contended with me. He didn't let me slide. He didn't let me just run off into that. And I had the grace in my life to have a dad like this. And I know some of you haven't. I just want to let you know that God's this kind of father to you. He's the father you never had. By God's grace, I had this. And our earthly fathers, it says, they disciplined us and we respected them. And at the time, I was like, dude, just let me do what I want. Why are you sitting me down in this room? Why are you spanking me, grounding me, dealing with me, right? I was just like, dude, I wish you were just out of my life and I could just run free. Notice it says this, they disciplined us and we respected them. As an older man, I can look back now and say, you know what? Thanks, Dad, for doing that. I see your love. I see your care in my life. Now it says this. We had earthly fathers who disciplined them, us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? If we subjected ourselves to our dads who loved us in our discipline, right, how much more should we subject ourselves to the discipline of God who loves us purely and perfectly? That's what the writer's saying. He's saying, you respected your dad when he did that. How much more should you respect God and not take lightly his discipline and pay attention to when he's addressing you, convicting you? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for what? For our good, that we may share in his holiness, that we may share in the distinction of being children of God, that we might share in righteousness, that we might bear fruit in our lives. There's a point to this suffering. There's a point to this discipline. There's a point to this conviction. It's to bring you away from that which robs, kills, and destroys and puts you on a path of peace and fruit and righteousness. 
for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen? In the moment, it doesn't seem pleasant. It seems painful. And if we just say it just stinks, right? Anybody who's gone through the discipline of the Lord, man, oh, this stinks. And we might not be seeing the good in the midst of it, but here he encourages us. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's God doing? He's bearing fruit in your life. He's making you like his son. He's changing you. He's transforming you. Therefore, in the painful discipline, in the moments that just stink, God's convicting me, he's dealing with me. Might have been a friend that came to me and pointed something out in my life. Might have been the spirit just in his sovereignty spoke to me in my car. Might have been something I read. Might have been a sermon I listened to. God's contending with me and it's painful. I love this. Look at this. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Here's the picture. When someone's being disciplined, right, they just walk away and they're like this, right? Shoulders hung, like looking like Eeyore walking around, right? Like my hands are droopy, my knees. It's painful, man. This stinks, man. God's getting after me right now. He's calling me out on some things. This is not cool. But we know we have a loving father. We know we have a loving father that doesn't intend death for us, but life for us. And so he contends to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. And because we know we're loved by God, and this discipline tells us that we're not illegitimate, but legitimate sons and daughters, that we're in the faith, and because he's doing something good in our lives, because of that, we strengthen our hands, and we pick up our hung heads, and we find courage in our hearts, right? To go through this discipline, to endure this pain, knowing that God, our Father, our merciful Father, is doing something awesome in our lives. We might not see it just yet, but he's bearing fruit. Lift up your drooping hands. Don't be discouraged. Strengthen your weak knees. Stop being an Eeyore. Stop walking around. Woe is me. I'm being disciplined by the Lord. No, it's his mark of love in, his, in your life. Make straight paths for your feet. Notice the path he's rescuing you and turning you from, the path that robs, kills, and destroys, and see the path of life that he's putting in front of you. And walk it and bear fruit in this so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. We think that God's harming us, right? And we walk around where like our pride is, is limping, right? Or we're hurt in one particular area. God's putting his finger there like, oh man, like I'm, I'm just hurting here. Notice what the Hebrew writer says. He doesn't want to put it out of joint. He wants to heal it. He doesn't want to do you more harm. He wants to strengthen that part of you. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So how does this suffering fit in? Suffering has a way like nothing else to get you laser focused on life's most important things. It forces you to be introspective, to confront the things that an easy life would quickly dismiss. Guys, I will say, sometimes when this discipline comes in, it's just easy for us to just run away from it, suppress it, just push it down. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Don't regard that lightly. Don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Don't shove it down. Don't laugh it off in arrogance and in pride. 
pay attention because he's loving you. I found that followers of Jesus are very tuned in to what the Spirit desires in them during and after suffering. Discipline, suffering, what Peter calls judgment here, it all leads to the same place. Change, transformation, Christ-likeness, and a heart that's just swelled up with love and fidelity for the one who lived, died, and rose again for you. It's a hard road, but it's sometimes the road that God chooses to put us on, which is the entire point of verse 18. If the righteous is scarcely saved or saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Right? It's the, the, this phrase here, scarcely saved, it doesn't mean like, it's not calling into question our security of salvation, like we're barely saved or we barely got in. The word scarcely means with difficulty. Meaning this, the path, the road of life that leads to this inheritance that's reserved for us, that will be revealed in the last day, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, the salvation that's already ours, the path towards receiving that in the end is paved sometimes with difficulty. We're saved in difficulty. As one commentator put it, it does not imply the uncertainty of the outcome of our salvation, but the difficulty that the, of the road that leads to it. Peter's been telling us that God's refining presence in our lives means difficulty in our lives sometimes. Is it fun being convicted? No. Is it fun being disciplined? No. It is difficult. And it's a difficulty that unbelievers and those whose hearts are hard towards God don't experience. Why? Because they're not in tune to what the Spirit's teaching them. And they just run from it. And they ignore the voice of the Lord. Let me give you an example. Take relationships. Right? Take relationships for an example. If you're in a relationship, guess what, man? Right? Sinners relating to sinners. You know what's going to happen? Right? Someone's going to sin against someone, hurt someone's feelings. Something's going to happen. In some of our relationships, we deal with unforgiveness and bitterness, right? Here's what God does to the believer. He doesn't let us walk the path of bitterness. And every time in my life where I've wanted to just hold on to bitterness toward a fellow brother or a sister, it takes about a day where God softened my hard heart and I'm calling for a meeting where I'm sitting across from a brother who the day before I was spewing in anger with coffee between us asking their forgiveness. Is that from me? No. That's the discipline of the Lord. He doesn't let us continue in bitterness, continue in unforgiveness, continue in strife. He contends with us and disciplines us. And he makes straight paths for our feet and brings us back to the place where we reconcile and forgive and love and walk the way of Jesus in our relationships. Right? The unbeliever, they might experience some reconciliation. But you know what? They don't have the power of the gospel to forgive. They don't have the power of the gospel to reconcile. And they'd rather just set fire to all their relationships and just run off and just ignore it all and leave disaster in their wake and never reconcile. But God doesn't let us do that. Why? Because he intends good for us. Because broken relationships are death in our lives. It's not good. And he wants good for us. Spirit doesn't let us slide off into folly and hard-heartedness. He contends with us. He doesn't let us brew in bitterness and anger for long. He puts his finger on that in our lives and compels us to deal with it. You know, being a follower of Jesus is hard sometimes. It's just hard forces you to do and say and deal with things that in your former ignorance you just run from, ignore, suppress, forget, put off. C.S. Lewis said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. 
I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. I don't know if you've ever tried port. It's like alcoholic prune juice. It's really weird. I'm like, who's this for? C.S. Lewis, I guess. Right? C.S. Lewis says, you know what? If I ever wanted to be happy, I knew a nice glass of wine would do that. I didn't come to Christ because it was going to be easy. I don't know if someone sang you some ice cream and pie song on your way to coming to Christ. There is freedom in Christ. There is rest in Christ. But there is difficulty in a relationship with Christ. And if judgment begins with the household of God, what would be the outcome of those who don't obey the gospel? And just really quick, I just want to mention this. I would be amiss if I didn't mention, right, what Peter's alluding to here. For those of us who don't have this relationship with God where he contends with us, right, where we experience his discipline, and it proves that in our lack of discipline that we're illegitimate, and we've not obeyed the gospel, we haven't embraced it, Peter says there is a judgment that's coming. And the biblical imagery is horrifying. It's horrifying. And that his torment and his hell is conscious and eternal. And it's meant to be horrifying to wake us up to the horror of its realities and to turn our hearts to Christ. And I would just say to you, in your unbelief and in your hard hardness, it doesn't have to be that way. You can come to Christ. You can come and be a part of this household. You can come and be a part of this family. And you can come to know God as Father instead of Judge. And all that's stored up for you in the end who don't obey the gospel. God put it on Christ for you. You're already reconciled. You're already forgiven. Your unbelief is keeping you away from it, running in the joy of its reality. So come. Come and know this forgiveness. Come and know this reconciliation. Come and know this God. I beg you. Peter begs you. Verse 19. Last thing, he says this, therefore, because all that's true, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. When we experience the discipline of the Lord or when he comes to us with this kind of ministry in our lives, it's easy to not entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what's good. It's easy to run. It's easy to ignore it's easy to suppress. It's easy to not submit our hearts to the process. It's easy to not say, okay, God, I'm done fighting. What do you have for me here? Because you know what? I know you're my father. I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you're dealing with me as a son. And because of that, I can just entrust my soul to you. I can entrust my soul to you to have your way among me and in my life and to teach me all that you're trying to teach me. And I don't have to run because I know you're my good papa who means me good. And out there when I run is death and pride and hell. Here is life, being a part of the household of God and the father who's teaching me good. Because of all those things, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator and doing what's right. What Peter's telling us is just submit to him. With open arms, just embrace all that he has for you in this life all the good and all the seemingly for the moment painful discipline. Receive it from him and trust and trust. You know, sometimes it's so hard to see what God's doing in the moment. And sometimes it might take months and years to look back and say, wow, God, that's what you were doing. 
And the entire time you were calling me to entrust my soul to a faithful creator and doing what was right. And it was so hard for me at times. Now some years back, I see what you were doing. How did I ever doubt? Why did I ever not believe? Why did I ever question or guess your heart to me? So Peter says, judgment's beginning with the household of God because he loves us. Therefore, entrust your soul to a faithful creator and doing what's right. God, thank you for this word. I think that this passage is very clarifying. And I pray that we would recall it to memory when we go through it. God, some of us in the midst of suffering right now, some of us a path of suffering ahead of us, um, a path of discipline as God contends with us, pray that we would not regard it lightly. I pray that we would pay attention. I pray that we would see the path that you're putting right in front of us and the path that you're rescuing us from in repentance. And I pray that we wouldn't question or doubt your character to us, that you love us. I pray that you'd give us the faith and the strength to know that you're our good Papa who means and intends good and that we would entrust our souls to you. Maybe we can do that as a family just right now as we would just open our hearts and open our hands and say, God, we, we just, in faith, knowing the truth of this passage, we just want to, I just want to say, I received this from you. Help me not to run. Help me to listen. Help me not to suppress, but help me to submit to this, knowing that you're good. God, whatever you have for me, whatever you want to teach me, I'm yours. You're my father. You've bought me with a price. And I just want to submit to the process, and I want you to teach me and be open to it. I want to entrust my soul to a faithful creator and doing what's good. Amen, church? Amen. Well, no final song. I don't really have a song and dance for you guys or anything. But uh, what a clarifying passage, right? If you've been going through it, if you want to, any, always, if you want to talk or process or whatever, Hopefully you have a community and a family, a small group that you're doing that with, you know. But if not, I'd love to chat with people and, and all that. So I'm down here, available to you if you want to talk or whatever. If you've got something going on, I want to pray through something. But anyways, God's our good Papa. He loves us. And because of that, we can entrust our souls to him. Let's do that this week, church. Amen. Grace and peace. See you next week.